Hello, everyone. You're listening to Elisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud, the podcast. My name is Elisa Curry-Lowitz, and I'm here today speaking from the heart to inspire and motivate you to be your best self. There is so much more to life than the nine to five daily grind, and I want to share all of my secrets with you. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Elisa here. Thank you for joining me today on the Elisa Unfiltered Podcast. Today it's Wednesday, January the 20th, 2021. Big day for some of my friends around the world, especially those to the south in America. Big day, big day. Uh, Today is also a big day here for the pod. I have a fantastic show. Last week I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Alexis Connison. But before I introduce her and start talking all things diet and body image, hint, hint of what the show's about, I wanna remind you all that my program, The Vow, 21 Days of Self-Care, is available now. And it's available at a discounted price. It's on sale. I made a massive sale. So the program kicks off February 1st. If you haven't signed up, you do not want to miss this opportunity. It's 21 days filled with self-care and self-love practices that do not require money or spa treatments. All right, it focuses on taking care of yourself through new mind and body skills that I have acquired over the last five to seven years and have implemented. So it's tried, true, and tested things that I have in my life that I help my clients with, that's part of my paid program, my six-week mindset program. There's a lot of intertwined, very deep and impactful things that are intended to help you expand your mindset and perspectives and and develop a really solid self-care plan, self-care regime. So if you would like to learn these techniques, press pause right now, sign up because the program, which by the way is $197 normally, That was the price of the program. It's now on sale for only $21. Okay, so why would I do this? I'm doing this because the world is in a crisis. There are so many people, including myself, in a state of full-blown lockdown. Jobs are, people are losing their jobs, budgets are tight, and I want as many people as possible to have access to these techniques. All right, so... I will link the program with the $21 Canadian discount in the show notes so you can all, and you can also access it on my Instagram page at Elisa Curry Lowitz. It's in the link in my bio. The price is only available until January 31st, then it's gone forever. So do not hesitate to join right now. Got it? <laughs> Good. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the show. Dr. Alexis Connison is a licensed psychologist in private practice in New York City. She specializes in the treatment of overeating disorders, body image, and psychological issues related to bariatric surgery. She also treats people struggling with sexual functioning, depression, anxiety, adjustment problems, relationship issues, and other psychological issues. I found her on social media on Instagram at at the anti-diet plan, and her page immediately resonated with me. 
She talks all about discovering compassionate and mindful ways to stop dieting and get on with your life. I was thrilled when she agreed to come on the show. I think you should all go follow her right now on Instagram (laughs) and get ready for a deep dive into all things diet culture, sneaky ways we incorporate food rules, how privilege and oppression play a role in our health and body image, and how you can begin your journey to a better relationship with food today. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Alexis Connison. All right, Dr. Alexis Connison, how are you today? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here too, because honestly, the message that you have, I'm a huge fan of yours on Instagram. Let's just get that out of the way. Thank you. Um, And all your messaging and what you're talking about is, it resonates so deeply within my life that um, I feel I'm kind of having like, I'm like fangirling a little bit. I'm not going to (laughs) lie on the subject of, of, of the anti-diet, the anti-diet. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Let's get right into it because I know a lot of my listeners, food, diets, exercise, diet culture, that all resonates deeply. And I think it's really important to maybe get a little bit of background about your journey behind the method behind the madness that you speak of. on your Instagram story. So how did you find, or how did this all begin for you? Sure. Um, well, I think like so many of us, well, like all of us, I was raised in diet culture. I came from Mm -hmm. a home with a lot of dieting and, um, just kind of grew up always feeling like my body wasn't good enough that I had to be smaller and try to kind of sculpt myself into this ideal that, that society tells us we should try to be. Um, and I was really kind of struggling with this because mm-hmm. I wasn't having much success at dieting. I was kind of intermittently feeling, um, trying to be on a diet, but then kind of feeling like I was being bad or going, you know, um, yep. off the plan and feeling out of control. And like so many of us do, um, I kind of devoted my career then <laughs> to studying this. So I became a psychologist and initially really was training in a weight normative model. So did my, um, my doctorate in psychology focusing on weight management and actually, um, looking at people who undergo bariatric surgery, um, for my research and then trained in a bariatric surgery clinic for my postdoc and also worked in, um, quote unquote obesity research for a number of years. And thankfully, um, not too long into my, career after I, you know, finished up school and my training and everything, um, started to realize that like none of that works. <laughs> it wasn't just me that was having issues with it. It, it yeah. just, you know, wasn't working for my clients. It, the research wasn't convincing that it was working. And I'm so grateful that, um, within a year or two of opening up my practice, I discovered mindful eating and that was really a life-changing experience for me. So when you say it wasn't working, like what wasn't working? Diets, the plans, the like, that type of thing? Yeah, all of it. Like, all of it. You know, I think that I was trained really in this model of, you know, um, people need to eat less and exercise more. And it's a lot about motivation and, um, you mm-hmm. know, education about, um, I 
I'm a psychologist, I don't do nutrition education, but like behavioral change strategies and um, cognitive behavioral techniques to change our, you know, basically to eat less. And it's all kind of bullshit. Like none of it works. It ends up making people feel totally out of control around food. And Mm. that's, if you look at the research, that's like the expected outcome. That's the norm. Um, yet we all are kind of convinced that we're somehow doing it wrong rather than being able to see that the whole paradigm is really flawed. It is so easy to fall into that trap that I'm doing it wrong because like all of the, if the, if the research is there, it's quite interesting. Like why, why do all of these companies make all of these claims that, that they're the best thing or the next best way? And if all the research is saying one thing, why are we literally running in the opposite direction here? Yeah, well, and I would say because money. Um, right. There's a huge industry that is really um, built on us believing that there's something wrong with our bodies and that we can change our bodies if we just buy X, Y, and Z. Right. So, you know, if, if, if we believed, if we knew the truth that our bodies are good enough exactly as we are, that we can kind of work towards our goals without having to shrink ourselves, the whole industry would collapse. And that's a, you know, I think it's like a $76 billion uh, weight loss industry, not to mention, I think last time I checked the wellness industry is like $4 trillion. It's a lot of money invested in us, you know, feeling like crap about ourselves. I'm so glad that there's people opposing these positions out there and starting to get their message across like yourself uh, that is doing this hard work because it's very anti-diet culture. And do you, you must get a lot of, well, we're going to get into some more specific questions a little bit later, but just out of sheer curiosity, do you get a lot of people telling you that you don't know how it is or you're not right? Oh, totally. I mean, I get both. You know, I okay. think I get people... I get a lot of people saying, well, you know, it's not okay to tell people it's okay to be fat. You can't tell people that. Uh, That's dangerous. Oh, yeah. Let's expand on that exact. Let's expand on that a little bit because, yeah, I would really love to know maybe, I don't know if you want to share this, but like the psychology behind that statement, because the anti-diet or intuitive eating or however you want to call it is not permission to be fat. That's not the, that's not what it is. And it's not like, maybe let me rephrase that. It's not becoming fat. It's not about your fat. It's not about your body at all. It's about listen, well, outside of the way your body looks, it's about how your body feels and and getting in touch with wellness at the, I don't know, intuitive body feeling way? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that mindful eating or intuitive eating and the health and exercise movement is really about accepting our bodies as they are and recognizing that all people deserve respect and to be treated with dignity and compassion, you know, regardless of what their body looks like. Mm -hmm. And that when we can kind of accept ourselves and turn towards ourselves with compassion, you know, that, that's what really improves, you know, health and, and well-being. Right. Um, it's not hating ourselves, and it's certainly not having other people hate us, because that actually we see is, is really terrible for our health. Do you see an uprise in fat phobia? 
Um, you know, I think it's interesting. There, fat phobia has always, you know, has been around for quite some time. You know, I think that there's been more attention paid to it because we're starting to recognize fat phobia as something, mm. you know, I think it was a good thing that we're starting to recognize it because I think for a long time it was just a really unquestioned norm. Gotcha. Um, and now people are starting to kind of be more vocal, you know, on a wider scale of saying this is something that's super problematic. It's really harmful. And, you know, we won't tolerate it anymore. We're going to speak out against it. So I think there's more attention being called to fat phobia, but you know, fat phobia has been around for a long time. Okay. I hear you on that. I mean, as a former fat person, um, I used to, I used to weigh 85 pounds more than I was. I was a size 20 on, no, excuse me. I was a size 22 on my wedding day. And I, I, totally can see people treated me so differently than they do as quote unquote a thin person as a I'm like a size you know 8 to 10 to 12 in that range that medium large range and I am treated substantially different now than I was at size 20 22 it is it's really it's really insane how the psychology of uh you I also like I'm really questioning the psychology behind seeing a person, judging a person's thinness or body fat and associating it with how well their life is going. So people think thin people's lives are great and fat people's lives are not great. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks to the, you know, really pervasive fat phobia that we have in our culture. And, you know, I want to start off by saying that so often we hear stories like that, you know, Mm -hmm. about people being treated better when you're in a smaller body versus in Mm -hmm. a larger body. And we think, well, okay, yeah, that's evidence that we have to help people become smaller. We have to help people lose weight. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to emphasize that I think really, you know, it underscores the importance of trying to eradicate weight stigma and fighting against fat phobia so that, you know, people at all sizes can kind of have, you know, be treated decently. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I think that there's an association of, if you look at the, you know, there's a ton of like negative stereotypes and judgments that we make about, about fat people and people in larger bodies. And, uh, similarly, you know, same types of assumptions and stereotypes we make about thin people and a ton of assumptions that we make about people when they lose weight. And we think that, you know, that's a good thing. So we congratulate them. We Mm -hmm. tell them they look great. We, you know, ask what their secret is. And oftentimes weight loss can actually be a sign of, you know, stress, health, health issues, eating disorders, cancer. Uh, there's lots of really awful things that happen in someone's life that can cause them to lose weight and not really things that we can congratulate them on, that we should be congratulating people on. Conversely, there's a lot of awesome reasons that people gain weight. And, you know, that's something that is often kind of seen as a bad thing rather than recognizing it as, you know, a sign of health in and of itself. So I'd like to get into some diet culture stuff because diet culture is very sneaky. And over the past 12 to 18 months, I've really uh, gone through um, 
really had a wake up call and started to transition into intuitive eating. I'm a recovering, uh, recovering diet culture victim, if you will. Um, and I find, I mean, if you asked me 18 months ago, if I had disordered eating, I would be like, no, absolutely not. I am clean eating. I'm gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free and yada, yada, all the food rules that I had created. And I, sort of glamorize that as being this badge of honor that made me a better person because of what I was eating. And however, behind the scenes, it was really creating this extremely horrible relationship to food. I truly believed, or I had convinced myself that I was a normal eater, but really deep down, the food choices I was making, the patterns, the cycle of abuse, the restriction and the binge was so disordered. I had absolutely no awareness that this was harmful. I thought it was normal. Yeah. I think it's completely normalized in our culture. You know, if you look on Instagram or you look on, um, you know, magazines or whatever, like it's all this really disordered, like it's like encouragement to engage in disordered eating, Mm -hmm. um, as, and seen often as a sign of health and like uh, prestige, like it's, you know, like this accomplishment um, of eating in this disordered way. So how can diet culture be sneaky? Because like, I, I mean, the obvious, the obvious way is that I, I see it day to day is, you know, um, prioritizing our looks over our wellness. Or, or our mindset. Um, but I also think that some, there are some really sneaky food rules in there. Like I caught myself even now after all of the things that I've been practicing, I know that this is a long-term commitment for me. There's no, it's not like a two week fix. At least I've learned that for myself. Um, I caught myself a couple of weeks ago, portioning out food. I do the majority of the cooking within my relationship with my partner and I would always give him more because he's a man and I would give myself less. And I realized that that was a sneaky diet culture rule that I had in my brain and how we sort of overcame that and maybe not overcame, but how we shifted that was we always checked in and tapped in with each other. Like, honey, how hungry are you right now? How much would you like to eat? Instead of just like blatantly always giving him more because he didn't necessarily want more. I don't necessarily want less. But I found it to be a really interesting sneaky way that diet culture sort of sneaks in to our psyche. Can you speak to that a little bit? or? Yeah, yeah. and I think that one of the great things is that when we start, when we kind of wake up from diet culture and start practicing intuitive eating, start learning about like the fat positivity movement and... Um, and help it every size and things like that, we start to recognize all these places where where it pops up in our life. And that's the first step to change. You know, awareness is the first step to changing anything. So the more that we can kind of recognize, okay, that um, that's diet culture there. Yeah. You know, okay. That's diet culture over there. We see it and we can start to relate to it differently. Right. So these are the these are these are areas where I'm shaming myself, I feel guilty or deprived that is like a belief system or a message that I've adopted over time that to shame. And, we, and there's a ton of stuff that we all 
internalized because we're, you know, if, if you were raised in kind of like mainstream Western culture in the United States, um, you're raised in diet culture. So right. um, when I say mainstream, let me backtrack. <laughs> what I really mean is um, when you're raised in kind of white Western culture, um, that like diet culture is so pervasive. You know, in in the U.S. and in other cultures as well. But I think, you know, so we all internalize it. Like we're all just kind of like marinating in that, uh, especially during these like very formative years of our life. I think, too, like just to add to that a little bit. I don't know how educated I personally was or the general population is to what disordered eating actually is. Like for me, I had only really heard that term for the first time, like within the last year to 18 months. I had always known what eating disorders were, what anorexia, bulimia were. Orthorexia was something that really just came into, um, which is came into my, I don't know, language, which I really feel as though I might have been orthorexic. I have no no clinical diagnosis, but all of the the symptoms very much resonate with the way I lived my life. And I think that education on what disordered eating looks like is also a step in that awareness piece. Like, so what does it look like or what might it look like in someone's life? So I think it can look really different in different people's lives. You know, I think that disordered eating is any kind of eating that feels problematic and, you know, a little bit more Mm -hmm. what I mean by that. If it feels like you're thinking about food all the time, if you're worried about what should I eat, you know, if food, if there's foods that feel safe and foods that feel scary and foods that are labeled good and foods that are labeled bad. And if you're judging yourself based on how you eat, if you're feeling virtuous, you know, if you're able to eat clean and you feel guilt or shame, if you, um, you know, eat other kinds of foods like that all to me paints a picture of disordered eating. Um, and I think really, um, you know, there's diagnostic criteria for eating disorders, but there's a lot of gray area where people tend to think, well, I'm not really that sick. It's not really that bad. I, you know, I don't really need help. I'm just on a diet. I'm just doing what it seems like everyone else is doing. And, you know, um, I want to highlight like that, that, that that is deserving of treatment and it makes a lot of sense. It can really be transformative to look hard at what's going on there and see if there's a way of eating that can feel more peaceful and harmonious to you. Yeah, so do you find that there's a common tipping point to that your clients, for example, might have in order to seek out help? Like, does it have to get really bad? Or what are some of the things people need to be willing to face in order to see this as a problem? Because that's something that I was so resistant to. I did not think I was a problem. I did not think what I was doing was problematic whatsoever until one day I had the craziest like five day binge and I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. Now, now's the time for me, but it, does it, does it look different for everyone? Yeah. I mean, I think it does look different for everyone. And it's interesting when you say that having this five day binge was what brought you to kind of see what was going on in a different light. And I think that often, you know, because 
because of diet culture and because of fat phobia, it is often binge eating that is what brings people into treatment. At least this is what I see in my practice. Like we tend to think that, okay, you know, kind of the, uh, the dieting part of the cycle. And when I say dieting, I also am kind of referring to, you know, like lifestyle changes and clean eating and yeah. whatever else, you know, kind of falls under that category that people might try to argue is not the diet, but kind of actually is. Yeah. Um, you know, we tend to see that as good when, when we're in it. So, you know, if you can kind of, people who are kind of just staying more in that part of the cycle in the more restrictive part of the cycle, I think can help can be delayed more there because it's so reinforced and praised in our culture. Whereas, you know, binge eating is seen as, you know, more out of control. It's there's more shame surrounding it. It's seen to, you know, interfere with our quest for thinness and weight loss and health. So, you know, for people who are binge eating, and I think this is like a good thing actually that it can drive, drive you into therapy or treatment a little bit earlier. Um, because, you know, we tend to recognize that that feels more problematic. Okay, thank you for that. That's, that's really helpful advice. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so a couple other sort of triggers that I have experienced myself and I hear others experiencing. Actually, there's two and they're kind of the same. But the 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 excuse or the backing or the belief that they are addicted to food they have food addictions i would love your insight on food addiction and is that a thing or is that a diet culture way to sell you a program or get you on board with something else it's kind of like the all like food addiction and the all or nothing mentality in my brain go together um like sugar addiction is, is one of the main ones. Yeah. So I think the area of food addiction is, is really interesting. And when you look at the research, um, there's two, the research kind of falls into two categories. One, which is what you often see as the headline of like food is as, you know, um, sugar is as addictive as cocaine or these kinds of very salacious headlines that come out of it is actually looking at like brain imaging research that looks at, people, you know, in like some kind of brain scanner, um, who are like looking at images of, you know, enjoyable foods versus someone who's like addicted to drugs and like, Oh, the same parts of your brain light up. Okay. Well, yes, food is rewarding. Food is pleasurable. Food is enjoyable. So it does light up those pleasure centers in the brain. So does hugging. So does sex. So does, uh, music, you know, there's lots of things that are pleasurable that light up those centers in our brain. We don't necessarily say, Oh, I'm addicted to music because we enjoy listening to music. Um, so, you know, I, I, it, hear this a lot, like correlation doesn't equal causation just because these two things are associated or similar doesn't necessarily, you know, to me, paint the picture of food addiction. The other type of research that we see is typically in like animal studies where they provide what they call intermittent access to sugar for say rats. And what they find is that when you, you know, I believe like in the beginning kind of rats will eat, you know, if you put them, put in a mix of like food and sugar and whatever, they're 
but kind of like mix mix it around a little bit. But if you take the sugar away and restrict their access to sugar for a prolonged period of time and then reintroduce the sugar, they start to have a strong preference for the sugar. So to me, is that that they're addicted to sugar or that the restriction is triggering Mm. this process that feels addictive? And I think that's often what we see, even Mm. in the research that looks at humans, it's not really clear to me, you know, what's addictive, dieting or the food. That is profound. I'm having an out-of-body experience. I really (laughs) resonate with that. I know my mom listens to the show and she's going to be like, (gasps) with that one too. Oh yeah, because yes, is it the restriction or is it the actual food? My- I have a lot of clients who come in and they feel that they're addicted to food. And if they're open to it, you know, what I tend to find is that when we are able to kind of work on the restrictive piece, that compulsive feeling or addiction, quote unquote, really does tend to dissipate. I want to get into that, I think, in a minute. But my my next kind of question, my next like thing that I find comes up a lot is the topic of emotional eating and the stigmas around it and the reasons behind. So what is emotional eating? Is it something we hide behind? Is there a clinical reason why it happens? Like what is happening there? (laughs) Sure. So I mean, emotional eating, it's not a clinical term. So there's no like universal definition, but I think of it as any eating that's in response to emotion. So kind of any kind of emotion driven eating usually, you know, and I, I look at that one way that I kind of help people decipher emotional eating is like, is it hunger based eating or is it, you know, emotion based eating? And it can be both too. So right. it's not like either or. Um, and I think there's a lot of demonization that goes on around emotional eating. Like it's this really terrible, bad coping mechanism and that it's, um, you know, something that we have to overcome and, uh, you know, do away with. But emotional eating is like a pretty normal part of healthy eating. I, you know, I think that everybody eats emotionally at times. I don't, um, you know, I think that it can actually be a little disorder to think that we, you know, have to completely do away with emotional eating. Um, if we look at, you know, having a piece of cake at a birthday celebration or something like that, you know, are we, you know, eating purely for hunger or are we eating because we want to kind of celebrate and, you know, join in our community and our friends and family and having an enjoyable experience. Um, so, you know, and again, like comforting yourself with food, all this stuff is something that most people do at some times or another. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's a normal, healthy part of eating. It's also something that we can turn to, to cope when we want to, um, in my work, I try to help people have it become a choice rather than something that feels um, kind of out of control. And I think mm-hmm. that's where it starts to feel problematic is people kind of say, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what happened. I just, you know, ate all this food and I uh, wasn't aware of it or I wish I hadn't done that. And, yeah. you know, then we get into like the guilt-shame cycle around that. But I think, you know, it's a totally valid coping mechanism that we can choose to use at any time. And it's something that even in my work with people, 
around eating issues, you know, I try to emphasize that it's always available to them if they want to return to that. Um, I also do think it's important to have other kind of tools in the toolbox to deal with our emotions because of course. Uh, food isn't always the most complete way to deal with our feelings. And it's important that we actually be dealing with our feelings instead of neglecting them or kind of tuning them out. All right. So if I'm the avatar, if I'm uh, the person who is questioning how my relationship to food is really serving me, whether it's disordered, whether it's, you know, I'm shaming myself with food or depressed or causing anxiety, I'm anxious around it. I'm thinking about food nonstop. And I find that to be problematic. What where, what's the next, what's the first thing? Like if I'm sort of on that tipping point, like, do I continue this way or maybe I want to heal or try something else? Let's talk a little bit about the anti-diet plan. Like what, what does that mean? What is the anti-diet plan and why would someone kind of go in that direction? Sure. Well, the anti-diet plan is, is the program that I've developed, which is a six week, um, course that's really founded in mindful eating and mm-hmm. teaches people how to move away from diet culture, um, recognize where those messages of feeling not good about ourselves, you know, are coming from and start to really shift the relationship that we have around food and around our body. Mm-hmm. So it's about, uh, using mindfulness and mindful eating to start to listen to our body in terms of like when we're hungry, when we're, you know, feeling satisfied, when we've had enough to eat, what we want to eat, how to make choices around food. In many ways, it's like relearning how to eat something that we knew on such a fundamental level when we were babies and Mm -hmm. we just get so disconnected from over time. Um, So just coming back to kind of what we already know, but, you know, learning how to do that. And, um, you know, of course, also recognizing like how our body reacts to certain foods, what foods we, we want to eat and how to cope with emotional eating in different ways when it does come up. All right. So let's talk a little bit about intuitive eating. Is that, is the anti-diet plan another word for intuitive eating? So the, my program, the anti-diet plan, actually relies on mindful eating, which is a little bit different from intuitive eating, but they're very similar. Okay. Um, so intuitive eating is based on the book, Intuitive Eating, by right. Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rich, and um, you know they outline the 10 principles. Principles, yes, yes, in, yes. In the book. I've never so, read the book. I've just heard a lot about it. I mean, but I kind of, yeah, intuitive eating's kind of become a buzzword, Right. Yeah, it is. Um, And it's been misused a lot. Mm. So, um, you know, I hear about people doing like intuitive eating for weight loss or all these different (laughs) variations of of intuitive eating, which are inherently like not intuitive eating. And like Evelyn and Elise have a full time job on their hands trying to control over who's using the term and who's misusing it and misappropriating it. Um, But it really does refer to their specific program as outlined like in their book I, I highly highly recommend their book and you know following them on social media and kind of absorbing as much as they can put out because they're they're wonderful and um they actually just uh last year reissued issued a new edition of the book and so it's updated and it's really an excellent resource so that's intuitive eating mindful eating is based on mindfulness meditation which is you know a 
a practice that originally comes from different types of religious practices. Um, and it's really about becoming fully present in the here and now, in the current moment. And then in mindful eating, we kind of apply that along with non-judgmental awareness and acceptance mm. and self-compassion. And we apply all of that to our relationship with food and our body. So being fully present in our eating experiences, you know, using all of our senses to like taste, smell, feel, you know, hear food. Um, also being in tune with our body in the present moment. So recognizing when our body's hungry, when we mm -hmm. feel satisfied, when we want to eat, what we want to eat, what our urges or cravings might be. Um, but it's, you know, rooted in that mindfulness practice. So, you know, I think that's one of the differences between intuitive eating. Mindful eating tends to be a little bit broader because it doesn't have, you know, a book, one yep. definitive book saying yep. this is mindful eating. I think we see both of these terms co-opted a ton by diet culture. Yes. Um, and that's not what they're intended for. I really feel strongly that's a misuse of the, you know, of these practices. Um you know, with mindful eating, the Center for Mindful Eating, which is one of the kind of guiding organizations in mindful eating, um, has released like position statements really clearly stating that mindful eating is inherently weight inclusive. So it just really like gets under my skin when I see companies like, you know, Weight Watchers or Noom or these diet companies saying that they do mindful eating because it's really not. If you're listening to like a diet plan, you're not listening, you know, you're not eating, um, you're not prioritizing the information from your body. It's just impossible to do. So, you know, real mindful eating and intuitive eating, you know, the commonalities that they're both really about, like listening to your body, letting your body guide you in eating what you want, when you want, and making those choices of what you want and when you want it in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. I do find it really interesting how diet how diet plans do use that. Now that you're mentioning it, it does come up so often and it's like this mind it's like this manipulation. It's I always I'm seeing the manipulation more and more as I sort of wake up to my life and settle into my body a little bit more and I'm more in tune with my body and how sensitive I've become through this journey and I <sighs> One of the things that like I find super difficult or I have found super difficult is the disassociation to eating whatever you want to gaining weight. And I realize what you're saying is not eating whatever you want. It's eating what feels right for you and in the moment how what you, your needs are and, and really honoring your body. But that was a hard piece for me to really understand. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. And, you know, I think, again, there's so much, you know, I, even before I kind of touch on exactly what you're mentioning, there's so much fear around gaining weight. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that we can be so driven by that. So even just recognizing like that as diet culture and fat phobia and all of the systems that, you know, are related, um, to, to keeping us kind of caught in that bind of, you know, feeling like thinner is better yep. and it's bad to gain weight. And, you know, that's this really scary, awful thing that happens. But, you know, obviously bodies are meant to change over time. And that's just, you know, kind of the ways that we adapt and grow and evolve and perfectly, you know, healthy if that's what your body does. Um, okay. 
but you know, in terms of what it really means to like eat what you want when you want it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we can have a lot of people have an association of like, eat what you want when you want, you know, eat, eat whatever you want, whenever you want it to this, um, kind of like screw it mentality. Yes. Dieting, like, yes. right. Like you're either on the diet or it's like, fuck it. I'm going to like eat whatever I want. Yeah. And what we're actually doing when we're like, fuck it, I'm going to eat whatever I want is just eating whatever we're not supposed to eat on that diet plan. So it's sometimes, <laughs> it's often not even what we actually want. It's just what we think we're not supposed to have. So when mm. we can let go of the restriction and let go of the rules around food and kind of recognize that whole paradigm as like trash and put it where it belongs, yes. we can start to open up an exploration of like, what do I actually want? Like, what foods do I enjoy? What sounds appetizing? What are kind of like ways that I like to eat? What are, you know, do I like to be, wait till I'm very hungry before I start eating? Or do I feel more comfortable eating when I'm just like a little bit hungry? Yeah. Um, do I like to feel really stuffed? Or do I feel more comfortable when I stop eating when I'm, you know, at a lower level of fullness? So this is all like points of exploration, as well as just like starting to discover our food preferences and how those foods feel in our body. I'm so happy that you mentioned that because that was one of, that was a really hard thing for me to disassociate, to be honest. Like I, when I decided to have, I don't know if it was, I've never read the intuitive eating book, but when I decided to go on this journey to heal my relationship, I allow, I, I really was mindful of no food rules. So I just started eating and sometimes I would eat a lot. And sometimes I would eat the worst disgusting food, quote unquote, that I used to think was like this depth, like the worst possible thing to put into my body. And I would judge myself and I'm like, this is okay. This is part of the process. And I just started to really understand that I can eat this food anytime I want. Like I can literally, my, my partner and I have been kind of going through this journey together and we have this egg roll obsession. And so we would always like eat all the egg rolls. If we got like 12 or six or 12, we would eat them all because it was like this mental like block in our brains that if we wanted an egg roll tomorrow, we can just get another egg roll. Like it's, it's not like it's the last egg roll that's ever going to be on the planet earth. And I have to put it in my mouth this one, this right now, like that's kind of, it was this really interesting journey of like understanding that like, I'm a grown ass adult. I can make my own rules. And if I want the egg roll, I'll buy the egg roll. Now, granted, there's a whole nother conversation about the privilege of being able to do that. I do recognize that I am privileged and I am able to do that. It's not the last time you'll ever eat this sort of principle. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll say it does get tricky, I think, with food insecurity, you know, whether it's for for any reason, whether it's, you know, feeling insecure around, like, not that we're not going to have consistent access to food because we're depriving ourselves of it or because we don't have financial access to it or otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, food is limited in some way. And interestingly, you see high rates of eating disorders and disordered eating in food insecure populations, which makes a lot of sense. Yes. Um, but I think that when, you know, for if we are privileged to be able to, like, really affect 
afford food and feel secure that food is available to us whenever we want it, that anxiety and that sense of like, I have to eat this now because it's the last time I'll ever be allowed to have it does tend to go away, you know, or, or dissipate it, it, it eases. It doesn't always happen overnight because you have to think about how long you've put yourself through that process of believing that like, if you're going to have an egg roll, you better have it today and you better have as much as you can because you're going back on that plan tomorrow. Yes. Right. That's like a very ingrained mentality. And, you know, part of the process of, you know, the anti-diet plan as I teach it is really like, if you have those foods that feel out of control is to, you know, paradoxically is to welcome them in, in abundance, like you are, you know, Mm -hmm. buy 12 egg rolls. And if you eat the 12, buy 12 more. And there may be a period of time, which is totally normal part of this process where you eat all 12 because it still feels like, oh my God, egg rolls, like I'm not supposed to have these, but I'm having them and I'm allowed to eat them. But, you know, will I really be able to allow it forever? And we feel, you know, we can eat more than feels comfortable. And that's just part of the process. But if you stick with it and, you know, keep buying another dozen after you've eaten those over time, like we really do start to feel secure that like that food's not going anywhere and we can have it when we want it. So do you believe that if someone is not at the end of their journey, but in it, in their journey, because I don't like having definitive end points. I think definitive goals when it comes to our weight and our health is a slippery slope because things are always changing and, you know, shit happens. Let's just face it, shit happens. So if we're like in this process and the process might mean that you gain a little bit of weight. The process might mean that you lose a little bit of weight. But let's just say that you're you're in harmony with your food and you're eating mindfully and you would like to set goals that are related to the way you look. For example, maybe you want to get more toned or more strong in your body or that you might want to lose weight. Is there a sustainable way to lose weight in mindful eating? So this is a complicated question, you know, because I think that it starts with trying to unpack our desire to lose weight and understanding really where that's coming from. And I think that it's totally normal to want to lose weight. And it's, you know, um, really, again, like the expected outcome of a dysfunctional culture. So when we're told that thinner is better, that we're more valuable, we're more lovable, we're, you know, going to be accepted, we're going to, you know, get the job promotion, have the better life, the happier, healthier, everything, you know, if we just lose weight, of course, we're all indoctrinated to want to lose weight. But, you know, I think that when, when we are, intentionally trying to kind of like override what our body naturally wants to do, we're going to find ourselves right back in diet culture. I I don't think there's any way to pursue weight loss without being in that mentality where you're fighting against your body. And, you know, I think that fighting against your body tends to be a losing battle almost always because our physiology is really strong. And Yeah, so the physiology is really strong. And if you look at the research, there's really no evidence that people can lose and maintain significant amounts of weight long term, you know, through any of the studies that we've looked at. So, you know, I think our body tends to balance out at a comfortable place for our body when when we're eating mindfully and intuitively. And what that looks like, I can't predict. And, you know, I'd say. 
say, like, anyone who tells you that they know what your body's going to do when you go on this journey, like, run in the other direction because they're, it's a diet plan. You know, it's a diet, that sneaky diet culture, it's a diet in disguise. Um, you know, I think it's, it's scary. We kind of just have to trust our body and um, trust that our body has a wisdom that may not always be what we want, um, but it is trying to guide us in, in a path of health and wellness. Okay, I have two questions to follow up. Um, the first one kind of, re- I like to use myself as an example just to relate. I mean, for me, like the, um, where my body's at right now, it's really interesting when you start to make peace with food and limit your food rules and be mindful and eat, you know, respect your hungry cues, respect your fullness cues and do it consistently over and over again. And yes, it takes a long time and, uh, all of that, but it's really interesting how your need or desire to be thin and kind of goes away. Like you're, you, I, I have honestly been on this crazy mental and emotional healing journey as well. Like the, the food part is a huge fundamental pillar here, but it's also such a, um, in the process of healing my food, my disordered eating, I have done a lot of deep work. Like it's, it's, it's quite interesting how you make peace in the mind, how making peace in the mind sort of dissipates that need or that desire or because you find happiness. I find maybe not happiness. That's the wrong word. I find this journey has brought me a level of self-love and respect that really feels wholesome and good inside of my body. So the desire to like think I it needs to be better and that constant striving to, you know, improve has really subsided in so many ways. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think that's an amazing experience. Um, you know, I, I think there's two parts here, you know, one is that like self-compassion and accepting ourselves and, you know, recognizing those harmful messages from diet culture and moving towards, you know, a path of self-love is such a powerful experience. Um, and it's a really important one. And it's one that can provide a lot of psychological resilience for mm-hmm. us to just mm-hmm. cope with whatever comes our way a, a little bit easier. Um, that being said, self-love doesn't, you know, we can't kind of self-love our way out of oppression. So for people who have, you know, recover, you know, heal their relationship with food or, you know, stabilize in a larger body where they're going out, you know, they still have to go out into the world and cope with the persistent fat phobia. Yes. So, okay. you know, it adds, like, it's, it's not so easy to just say that, you know, um, once we accept ourselves, the story ends. But I think that accepting ourselves is step one to providing resiliency, to being able to do the, the larger work of really fighting diet culture, fighting oppression, and trying to you know make the world a little bit more of a hospitable place to, to people of all sizes. Very good answer. I really respect that. Those people that are overweight that would like to live mindfully and eat mindfully and eat intuitively that have medical conditions that might require them to be on a diet of some sort. I don't know, type two diabetes, for example, how do you get around that sort of 
medical issue when it comes to our health? So I want to separate out a few ideas here. One, um, you know, overweight, uh, and I don't love that term because it kind of assumes that there's like one weight that we're all supposed to be at and some people are over it. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, your, our weight and health are two really distinct things. Um, you know, and again, in diet culture and wellness culture, we're kind of taught that like being fat is unhealthy and it's bad and it is associated with all these health issues. But when you dig into the research a little bit more and, um, look at what's really, you know, impacts our health, we see that it's not, not really weight as much as, um, a lot of other things may, you know, and some of the biggest factors are in addition to like genetics, which is really the biggest in our, when it comes to our health, um, you know, access to, uh, adequate healthcare is a big one. Uh, weight stigma plays a huge role. Internalized weight bias plays, um, it has been shown to be an independent factor for, um, type two diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Um, you know, so like all of this stuff, you know, uh, income actually is, I believe the biggest, you know, income and genetics are kind of like the biggest determinants of health. So it's, you know, I think that, again, kind of diet culture, wellness culture, it mushes it all together and says, like, fat people are unhealthy, you know, because they're too fat and they're too fat because they don't care about their body. They're they're yep. lazy. They're not motivated. They're not doing the things that they need to do to eat right and, uh, you know, exercise and be active. Uh, so, you know, it's their own fault that they're unhealthy and we can hate them and be mean and, you know, abusive to people because of this. So, you know, it all kind of creates the perfect storm for fat phobia. So if we can really like separate out, you know, weight, because people of all sizes have type two diabetes. Um, and again, genetics, huge impact on how you get type two diabetes. The, even the idea and that we have that like you have to be on a diet if you have type two diabetes is something that I would question because Yes, in my, you know, in mindful eating or intuitive eating, um, we can, we pay attention to how our body reacts to certain foods. So if you have certain medical conditions there, you know, you, you might notice more than someone who doesn't have medical conditions that there's more foods that really make you feel lousy or, or make you feel good or whatever, you know, so you can kind of use your own body to guide that. And, you know, I think that there's just so much stigma that goes on around, diabetes in particular because it's become an illness that's become so blamed on weight yes. that you know we we really like the pressure on people to manage diabetes through diet I think is really like astounding especially when there's a lot of great medications that can manage you know diabetes but you know I think to answer your question of like kind of what do you how do you reconcile mindful eating with people who have chronic you know health conditions and, you know, how can we say eat whatever you want when your doctor might be telling you you can't have carbs, you can't have fruit, you can't have sugar, whatever, all these different, you know, mm-hmm. litany of things. Um, a, like, I like to evaluate, is that working for you? So if you're, you know, on a, have a medical condition and you're following some kind of restrictive diet and that's fine and you're not, like, a, you know, preoccupied with food, you don't have a lot of, like, emotional reaction to, you know, um, what you're eating in terms of like guilt and shame or feeling that you're kind of on this, 
you know, on again, off again, diet, overeating, roller coaster. Like if you're, if what you're doing works for you, then great. Like continue doing that. But if you find that you're trying to follow this diet, you know, for your diabetes that your doctor recommended, yet you're, you know, binging and feeling out of control around food or feeling very restrictive and Mm -hmm. really like afraid of eating certain foods or, um, you know, uh, feeling obsessive about it. I think that's something to look at. And, you know, the way that I work with people with different kinds of medical issues is just about trying to tune into that wisdom that your body's providing around what foods work and what foods don't. And, and I do that in tandem with a registered dietitian most often. Okay, very good. So one of the last things I want to talk to you about today is, you know, how December and January are kind of hard food months. <laughs> There's a lot of messages out right now. I mean, I, I've i had to go on a, several social detox, blocking people, muting people all over the place, before and after photos, New Year's resolutions, what to eat, you know, cauliflower substitutions for mashed potatoes. Like, it's there's so many levels and degrees of, like, this crazy messaging that... Um, so how... Can you give maybe one piece of advice to the people listening that are maybe struggling with those messages at, you know, vulnerable times of the year, uh, or harder months where, you know, food is kind of important when it comes to traditions and celebrating yet. There's also this huge push to go on a diet on day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm finding the like new year, you know, new year, new you start your diet, change your body. So, it feels so predatory this year after, you know, it, it's predatory every year, but like, especially after like the hell that so many people have been through this year yes. to say like, now here's something else that you should add to your plate. Here's some other way that you should try to fix yourself. Um, and I think we're also at the same time, particularly vulnerable to it this year because so many people are struggling and when we're not feeling good about ourselves or we feel like our life is kind of falling apart, it's really easy to say, well, if I just follow this diet plan or, you know, do X, Y, and Z, then everything's going to be okay, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's a, a confluence where, like, the diet industry knows that and kind of um, capitalizes on our insecurities to try to, to make money. But, you know, I think that when we, you know, again, it's all about the awareness. So once we've kind of woken up to diet culture and are aware of, these messages, we can critically examine them rather than taking it in. So we can Mm. kind of say, okay, I see that, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, that's diet culture, label it however we want, and we don't have to partake. Very good. Amazing. Okay, so how can we find you? Where, 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 what, where, where do we find you? (laughs) Sure. Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at the Anti Diet Plan. Um, all social media at the Anti Diet Plan. Twitter, Facebook. Um, I also have a new book that's going to be coming out this summer oh, yes. called The Diet Free Revolution. Um, so that is going to be published by North Atlanta Books and distributed by Penguin Random House. You can go on the <gasps> Penguin website and pre-order it now. You um, can? Okay. Amazon as well. I'll link that for sure. Amazing. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. And then on the web, I'm at uh, www.drconnison.com. I do have a group therapy practice in New York City. Um, if that 
positive therapy practice if anyone's looking for more. And the online course, the antidietplan.com. You can get all the information there. And one more, I have a free uh, five-day um, mindful eating or the anti-diet plan intro course. So if anybody's just looking to kind of get their feet wet in this, you mm. want to learn a little bit more, you want some really hands-on practices and exercises to do to start immersing yourself in mindful eating and understand a little bit more what that's all about, you can just sign up on my website, drconnison.com. That's a really great resource to have a five-day plan. That's a great resource just to, you know, get a real sense of what the heck is happening in your life. So I'm glad you offer that. I'm going to do that. (laughs) I'm going to sign up for that right now, actually. (laughs) Very good. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, ah, what a brilliant, what a brilliant message. And I love everything that you do. Again, everyone go follow her on Instagram at the anti-diet plan. And thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, that's all for today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Alexis Connison, for coming on the show. That was awesome. And if you haven't done so yet, please go and sign up for The Vow. The Vow, The Vow, The Vow, 21 Days of Self-Care. Link is below or in my bio on Instagram at, at Alisa Curry Lowitz. You don't want to miss this. Sale ends January 31st. Thank you all so much for listening. Have the best day, everyone. Until next time. Bye.